several Sunday mornings. I figured we would just skip the sermon I'm prepared and talk about the abide reading, especially, especially this morning. Uh, how appropriate in today's time, uh, what Tim just said, God, we've seen God do great things through men who are, who are flawed. Um, and there's great hope in that passage. I especially think about uh, verse 13 that we read where Nathan tells David... Um, God's forgiven your sin and you're not going to die. We have to live with the consequences of our sins, don't we? And David's consequences go on for many, many, many years. But he had the peace of knowing that God had forgiven his sin in eternity. And we have the same. So what a great passage. Let's pray again as we open his word and get into the message for today. Father, we thank you again for... We're in the... uh final part today of a three-part series we've been studying on the uh, kingdom of God, and we're using that, as Jared said, as a follow-up to our study of Acts. Why? Because uh, the kingdom of God has been a subject of the book of Acts from the very beginning to the very end and almost everywhere in between, as we saw last week. So in part one, we looked at the king of the kingdom of God, and we learned that that king is the expected king of the Jews, the Messiah. Christ. He was the rejected king of the Jews, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and he was the resurrected king of the Jews, Christ Jesus. And then last week in part two, we looked at the realms of the kingdom, the physical, the spiritual, and the imperishable realms of the kingdom. And we learned that although Jesus stepped into his physical kingdom when he came to earth as a man and performed miracles that were driven by his love and his compassion for his creation, his ultimate priority was the spiritual kingdom. And that's what he demonstrated to Nicodemus when he directed him to the kingdom of God that he could not enter, actually that he could not even see without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this morning in part three, we're going to look at the citizens of the kingdom of God. We're going to look today at what the Bible teaches us about citizenship in his kingdom. And because we were going to talk about citizenship this morning, I began thinking about being a citizen of the United States, something I actually don't think about all that often. I mean, I think about America a lot. I think about our country. I think about how our country was founded. And I think about the issues and the challenges that our country is facing. I think about the upcoming elections, even though lately I'm trying not to think about the upcoming elections. I think about America's proper role in the world. I recently started thinking about football players and even cheerleaders now standing or kneeling during our country's national anthem, but I rarely stop and think about the fact that I've been granted the rights and privileges of citizenship in our country. So in preparation for the message, I pulled a pamphlet. This pamphlet off the U.S. government website is called A Guide to Naturalization. It's actually about a 50-page manual that serves as a guideline for those who were not born as U.S. citizens but want to immigrate to our country to become U.S. citizens. It talks about the eligibility requirements to even apply for citizenship. It talks about the process one has to follow to become a U.S. citizen, and it talks about the benefits once someone has become a U.S. citizen. 
And amazingly, I learned that we have about 20 million naturalized U.S. citizens today. That's a lot of people who have successfully navigated the process explained in this particular pamphlet. And the question for me became, why? Why are there over 20 million naturalized U.S. citizens? Well, I'm sure they all had their own personal specific reasons, but I'm also pretty certain that they shared one overarching thought. And that thought is the United States is a better place to be. It could have been it's better because it was safer or it's more free or there's more opportunities to be what they wanted to be or perhaps that the future was brighter than where they were. But 20 million people secured citizenship here in America because it's a better place to be. And the guide for getting to this better place is this guide to naturalization. So with that in mind, let's do some exploring today about citizenship in the kingdom of God. And I'd like to do so by looking at our own guide for citizenship. That's the Bible. And we're going to look at what the Bible teaches us about becoming and what the Bible teaches us about being a citizen in the kingdom of God. So here's our outline for today's message. We're going to talk about what prerequisites, if any does God have to become a citizen in his kingdom? And we're going to use some scripture from Matthew chapter 18 to look at that. Secondly, we're going to look at by what process can someone become a citizen of the kingdom? And we're going to look at John chapter 3, where we were last week. And thirdly, we're going to look at what privileges are extended to those who become citizens of God. And we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians chapter 1 for that. So you can see we're going to be jumping around a bit in the Bible this morning. It might feel more like a Bible study than a uh, sermon, but that's okay. So let's start by looking at what the prerequisites are for citizenship. The Guide to Naturalization from the U.S. government outlines a lot of requirements that a person has to do just to be eligible to apply for citizenship in the United States. For example, one has to be at least 18 years old, and one has to have been a legal resident for at least five years. You have to read basic English, with some exceptions, and you have to be of good moral character. That's a quote, good moral character, as determined by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Wow. Too bad that's not a requirement to be President of the United States, to be of good moral character. But what are the prerequisites to become a citizen of the kingdom of God? For thousands of years before Jesus was born, and actually for many years after Jesus was born and died and resurrected, the Jews, his chosen people, believed there were two major prerequisites to become a member of the citizenship, citizen of God. First of all, they had to be a Jew, either by birth or by choice or by conversion. So they had to be a Jew. And secondly, they had to follow the law of God given to Moses, including all of his commandments and including sacrifices for those times when they failed to obey 
God's commandments. So they had to be a Jew and they had to follow the law. Those were the two prerequisites. Now the book of Acts that we just got through studying is the story of God through his Holy Spirit inspired apostles showing the world that that was absolutely that neither are actually prerequisites for citizenship in the kingdom of God. Actually, citizenship was available to everyone, the Jews and the Gentiles. And number two, nobody could actually follow the law fully. In fact, the law served as a vivid reminder of how far we fall short of the glory of God. So those are not the two prerequisites, but are there any prerequisites for citizenship in the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus actually said there are, and he said some very interesting things about what's required. But I'd like us to focus on one summary statement that he taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, we'll look at the first four verses. So Jesus is having a discussion with his apostles, his disciples, in Matthew 18... Verse 1, he says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Now we should note here that Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven as the other apostles use kingdom of God and they're interchangeable terms and I may interchange them as we speak today. But if you look at verse 1, Jesus' disciples, assuming that they were going to be part of the kingdom of God, wanted to know who was going to be the leading citizen. Which one of them was going to be the greatest and it's a question that they ask more than once. And then in verses 2 and verse 3, Jesus calls over a little boy to use him as a visible object lesson and tells his disciples that they have to change. In the New American Standard, the translation is they have to be converted. They have to change and become childlike if they want to enter the kingdom of God. Now, thankfully, in verse 4... Jesus explains what he means. He says the issue is one of pride. Jesus said that his followers had to humble themselves, literally to lower themselves, in order to enter the kingdom of God. In Texas, we would say he needs to come off his high horse. Or more appropriately, we all need to come off of our high horses. We have to stop thinking of ourselves as more righteous than we really are. And we need to stop thinking we're in control. And we need to stop thinking we're capable of running our own lives. And we need to stop thinking that we know best. And Jesus says we have to be, humble ourselves and become like little children. Eager to learn from other people. Content to let others determine where we're going to go and what we're going to do. And trusting those who love us to provide sustenance and protection. 
I think about our daughter Michelle when she was three or four years old. She was taking a walk with Pam, and Pam was telling her something. And Michelle's response was, Mom, I know everything. And of course, Pam said, no, no, you don't know everything. God only knows everything. And I don't know what Michelle's response was. But I tell you that story not to pick on Michelle, who I love dearly, and who by now has figured out she doesn't know everything. But to remind us that it doesn't take very long for us to lose our childlike humility and start acting like adults or start acting like the apostles. Now, the scripture passage we just read doesn't indicate this, but I assume Jesus, based on that, must have had to call a very young boy to come over to him. I wouldn't be surprised if the boy had to crawl over just to find somebody who still had the humility of a child. Now, the U.S. government stipulates that you have to be an adult, at least 18-year-olds, to become a naturalized U.S. citizen. Jesus says that to become a citizen of the kingdom of God, you can't be an adult. At least you can't act like one. You have to change and be childish. Or maybe a more appropriate word, you have to change and be childlike. So childlike humility is the first, is a prerequisite for citizenship in the kingdom of God. And we'll see why when we look Next, at the second section of our study today, which is the process of citizenship. And the primary passage we want to look at to talk about the process for citizenship is John chapter 3. If you want to turn with me there now, John chapter 3. We're going to continue the lesson we did last week that deals with Nicodemus. Now, the Guide to Naturalization from the U.S. government also talks about process. It has a very detailed process to follow when one wants to become a naturalized citizen of the United States. You have to apply. You have to get photos and fingerprints taken. There's a wait step. And then after the wait, you have interviews or multiple interviews. And then there's another wait step. And then you take an English and a civics test. And there's another wait step. Eventually, you get to take an oath of allegiance where you have to renounce any existing positions or titles of nobility. Isn't that interesting? I think it's probably a good idea because in the United States, we already have a lot of royalty in this country. Why, just in the music field alone, we've had Duke Ellington and Count Basie. We've got Benny Goodman, the King of Swing. We've got Aretha Franklin, who's what? The Queen of Soul. B.B. King, King of the Blues. Michael Jackson, King of Pop. Luciano Pavarotti, the King of the High Seas. Elvis, what? The King. And of course, we have our own Jared Manning, the Prince of Praise, right? Now, the process for becoming a U.S. citizen is complicated and can take a long time. The process for becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God is neither long nor complicated. 
So as a review from last week, let's read the last week, let's read the first eight verses of John chapter three. There was, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So as we discussed last week, Nicodemus, the preeminent teacher in Israel and a powerful member of the Jewish ruling council, wanted to learn more about the kingdom of God. And there was a lot, actually, that Jesus could have shared with him. But without the Holy Spirit, it would have all been Jewish gibberish to Nicodemus. What Nicodemus needed was to be born again or born from above, born a second time. Otherwise, Nicodemus could not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says he couldn't even see it. So let's pick it up in verse 9 and read through verse 19. Starting in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of God. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but rather that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. The key word in this particular section is believe. It's used in some form eight times in these 11 verses. And it's all from the Greek word, the root word, pistuo, which is translated here as believe. It actually has a much stronger connotation in its original Greek than it does for us in English. Because in English, our language, the word believe, to believe, can simply mean that we agree 
with it. But in the Greek language, the language in which the New Testament was written, pistuo means to believe so strongly that you trust it. In fact, it can be translated as entrust. Look back at chapter 2, the, uh, verses 23 and 24. So John chapter 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, this is Jesus, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And the word believed in verse 23 and the word entrusting in verse 24 are from the same Greek word, pistuo. Translated in one context, believe. Translated in the second context, entrust. So keeping that in mind, John says believing or entrusting is the one-step process for being born again into the citizenship of the kingdom of God. That's it. One step is called believe. But believe in what? Or better yet, believe in whom? Or entrust our lives with whom? Well, John said in verse, 13, verse 16, as we see right there, that we're supposed to believe in him, the only begotten Son of God. And we can see from the other verses surrounding verse 16 at least three things about the begotten Son that we're called on to believe or trust. We see in verse 5 that we need to believe that on our own, we are spiritually dead. We first have to believe what Jesus said about our need to be born again. We have to believe that we are otherwise dead spiritually due to our sin. And as we discussed last week, we would have to believe that what we would certainly prefer to ignore, and that's that we are deeply entrenched in the dominion of darkness without Christ. We have to believe that we are sinners. Look at verse 19. It says, this is a judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. We have to believe that our deeds are evil and that as Jesus said, we need to be born again. And secondly, look at verse 13. We have to believe that Jesus, this begotten of the Father, is God. Because in verse 13, Jesus says in somewhat cryptic terms that must have become crystal clear to Nicodemus a few, a few years later, Jesus says that when he eventually ascends to heaven, it'll be obvious that he actually came from heaven, that he is actually God. So we have to believe that we need to be born again. We need to believe that Jesus is God. And then in verses 14 and 15, we have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for the benefit of sinners. Now here Jesus uses a reference to a, a story that Professor Nicodemus almost certainly would have taught his students many, many times. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 21. 
It's the story where the Hebrew people, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, were on the verge of entering the promised land. And they began to once again grumble against God and grumble against God's chosen leader, Moses. And as judgment on their sin, God sent venomous snakes to infiltrate the camp. And many people died from the bites of these snakes. But God provided a way of escape for the central Hebrews. He told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a stick where it could be easily seen. And anyone who was bitten by a snake could come look at this bronze snake and God would heal him or her. It's a strange story to us, isn't it? But if you think about it in other terms, these people who were facing certain death could find life if they just believed God's offer and accepted it. And I'm pretty sure Nicodemus taught his students that this was a marvelous example of the free grace that God had extended to their sinful ancestors, those who had openly and consistently rejected him. God could have justly killed them, but instead he offered them grace. So in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says that he's also going to be lifted up as a free act of God's grace and to save an openly and consistently rebellious people who were facing certain death. That's us. Jesus was telling Nicodemus and he's telling us that he was going to be lifted up on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to pay the penalty for our rebellion and purchase for us eternal life. And as he says in verse 15, we just have to believe him. And this is where, to me, it becomes clear why Jesus said, unless we become like little children and humble ourselves, we will never enter the kingdom of God. Because we can't fully believe or entrust our lives to Jesus until we first stop entrusting our lives to ourselves. Why would we ever turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins if we are still thinking we're righteous enough? And why would we entrust our life to Jesus if we think we're in control? And why would we follow Christ's lead if we still think we know everything? The U.S. government says that someone can become a naturalized citizen of the United States in two ways. By birth or by the process of naturalization, which is a long and rigorous process. Now, as we learned last week, Jesus taught that there were no naturalized citizens in the kingdom of God. Everyone has to be born into the kingdom of God, or more appropriately, born again into the kingdom of God. And the process is actually really simple and very straightforward. We have to humble ourselves, and believe in Jesus Christ and trusting our lives to him. That's it. And if you've not made that change of citizenship yet from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of God, I plead with you to do it now. Because there's no wait steps. The moment we trust our lives to Christ, we are instantly citizens in the kingdom of God. And there's no fingerprinting or background checks. God already knows everything about you, and he extends his grace to you anyway. And there's no language test. 
God's building his kingdom from every tribe, language, people, and nation, including all of us worshiping here today and listening later online. Citizenship in the kingdom of God is being offered to you. I pray that you would not turn it down. So, so far we've talked about the prerequisites for being a citizen in the kingdom of God. That's being childlike. The process for becoming a citizen, and that's being born again. Let's look now at the privileges of citizenship. As I mentioned earlier, the Guide to Naturalization from the U.S. government also lists some benefits or privileges of citizenship. And they list things like being able to vote or run for elected office. Neither of which sounds real compelling in today's political environment. But the privileges of citizenship in the kingdom of God are actually quite incredible. Because not only are we granted citizenship in the kingdom, we are adopted as God's children. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 to get a quick glimpse of what this means. Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there. I said we'll take a quick glimpse, but actually there's a lot there. So let's read Ephesians 1. We'll start in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 14. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to, be, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administ administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Look first at verse 5. He says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Believers have been adopted through the action of Jesus Christ. As I've said before, to become a U.S. citizen, one has to renounce all positions and titles of nobility. When we become citizens of the kingdom of God, we're adopted into the royal family of the king of kings. We're sons and daughters of the king. So think about it. What privileges go with being a child of God? Maybe an easier question would be what privileges don't go with being a child of God? 
in verse 3, Paul makes this very point because he says, We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In short, from a spiritual perspective, which is of ultimate importance, we've been given it all. And just to be clear, Paul gives us some examples in the rest of the passage of 1 Ephesians that we just read. In verse 4, he says, we stand holy and blameless before God. How can that possibly be? Because we've been given the righteousness of Christ who lived a perfect life, tempted in every way, yet was without sin. In verse 7, it says we have been forgiven by God and also that we have been redeemed. The penalty for our sins has been paid in full by the blood of Christ. Verse 11 says we also have an inheritance. Now, Paul doesn't make it clear in this passage what that inheritance includes, but John does in the book of Revelation makes it very clear. Actually, God makes it clear in the book of Revelation. Let me, let's read just... A few verses from chapter 21 of Revelation. I'll put it on the screen if you want to follow along. This is Revelation chapter 21. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Then I, that's John, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said... Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It's done, and I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the ones who thirst from the spring of water of life without. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Wow, that's incredible stuff. God tells John in verse 7 that the overcomers, that's a term that's used in Revelations to describe believers, will inherit these things. Which things? We'll look back at what John had seen previously, what God had just shown him. A new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. A new Jerusalem in verse 2. God as his neighbor in verse 3. God as his caretaker in verse 4. Eternal life, in verse 6, with God as our Father, in verse 7. That's our inheritance. That's what we've been promised. That's what Ephesians 1, verse 11 was talking about when Paul wrote that we've been given an inheritance. And back to Ephesians in, uh, in verse 13, it says, In order that we may be certain of this future inheritance... We're given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what's coming. It's a legal term, a commercial term in the Greek, meaning an initial payment or a down payment. So God gives himself, the Holy Spirit, as the initial installment of our inheritance. Now, if the Holy Spirit is the down payment, think about how marvelous our inheritance 
will be. So what have we covered so far this morning? We've talked about the citizenship of God, the prerequisites of being a citizen, being childlike, the process of citizenship, being born again, and the privileges of citizenship, being like a child of God. Now we started this message by talking about people that obtain U.S. citizenship because it's a way to get to a better place, a safer place, a freer place, a place with a brighter future. And that's no doubt true when we become citizens of the kingdom of God, or as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, citizens of heaven. Because even a cursory read of Revelation like we did this morning makes it clear that life in heaven is safe from harm of any kind, free from sin of every kind. And talk about a bright future, it's eternity with God. So one day, all of God's citizens will live with him face-to-face in New Jerusalem. That'll be incredible. But not yet. We don't get to go there yet. For now, we remain on earth living in God's physical kingdom, which is dominated temporarily by Satan's dominion of darkness. And it's a battle here, isn't it? Paul says later in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. It's not easy being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven living amongst the dominion of darkness. But it's even more alarming to realize that we come into God's kingdom as children, spiritually immature, unaware of the dangers around us, and unable to adequately care for ourselves. But God didn't leave us here alone. He didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. The children of God, the scriptures say, have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We can't yet go live with God, so he's come live with us. And not only live with us, but to live in us. That's even more incredible. And the Holy Spirit is actually much more than just a guarantee of our future blessing, isn't he? Think about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He convicts us when we do wrong and then comforts us when we are hurting or worrying. He teaches us and explains new truths to us and then reminds us when we forget. He gives us gifts and then shows us opportunities to share those gifts with other people. He points out our weaknesses and then encourages us that we can do and endure more than we ever thought we could. He prods us to pray and then prays on our behalf when we don't know what to pray for. For you parents and grandparents, does that sound familiar? Because the Holy Spirit does for the children of God what a loving mother or father would do for a child. God does not leave us here to fend for ourselves as a child in a foreign country. 
he gave, he gave us the loving Holy Spirit. So I want to close today by flipping just a few pages further in the book of Ephesians to chapter 4. So if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 25. And as we're turning there, I have a question for uh, all of us parents. What does it do to you when a child, when your child, refuses to follow your advice or disobeys or gets hurt by something you told them to avoid or fails to give their best effort? It grieves us, doesn't it? It hurts us when our children do that. And as I say that, I can't help think about my mom and dad because my brothers and I were so bad as children that I actually can't remember a single day when we didn't do all those things. And that's actually not much of an exaggeration. When my dad came home from work each day, he would give my mom a hug and a kiss and he would always ask the same dreaded question. And the question he always asked was, what did the boys do today? Now, I never heard him ask, what did the boy, how did the boys grieve you today? But that's what he meant. What did the boys do today? Then my mom would tell him we would get a spanking and we'd have supper. That was our evening routine. <laughs> what did the boys do today? Now, as we got older, it's interesting because things that once grieved our parents started to grieve us. And our behavior started to change, in our case, very slowly over a very long period of time. But that's what happens when we grow up. Things that once grieved our parents start to grieve us. Now, the subject we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 4 is grieving the Holy Spirit which works, I think, in very much the same way. As new citizens in the kingdom, we do things that grieves the Holy Spirit. And as we get older and more mature, the things that once grieved the Spirit, and not so much us, start to grieve us. It's the process theologians call sanctification. So as we read this passage in Acts, in Ephesians 4, there's a couple of ways we could look at it. We could, we could look at it and ask the Holy Spirit to tell us, what did the boy do today? Or what did the girl do today? How did we grieve the Spirit this morning? And you may want to do that sometime later this week in your quiet time. But I want us to, this morning, as we read this passage... Ask the Holy Spirit to show us, what did the boy not do today? Or what did the girl not do today? As we read this passage, there's at least a dozen examples in here about how we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And I trust that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you can look back and say, through the work of the Holy Spirit, you've been changed. There are things you did originally when you became a citizen of the kingdom that you do much less frequently today, that God is moving you closer to 
the likeness of his son. So let's celebrate a little bit this morning. I'll trust the Holy Spirit to show you what it is that you didn't do today. As we read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you as the king of the kingdom we are so privileged to be a part of. And we look forward with great anticipation for that day when we will live with you and commune with you face to face. And Father, we realize that our citizenship is a gift of your grace extended to us through the sacrifice of your son. And it's amazing. And so, Father, as we wait for that great day, we're grateful for your gift of the Holy Spirit, who you sent to take care of us. And we confess that too often we grieve him by not acting like citizens of your kingdom. But, Father, we also rejoice that through your Spirit you are changing us. Step by step, maybe slowly, into the children that we should be. And so, Father, we thank you for the work of your loving Holy Spirit in our lives. And, Father, for when we fail you, we ask for another chance to honor you as, with our actions. We ask for strength so that when we're faced with the same situation again, we might respond in a way that pleases you and pleases your Spirit. We ask these things as your children. And in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus, amen.